Please take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to take a break for the next several weeks from our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And next week, the Dominican Republic team will be sharing. Matthew Holbrook will be preaching. And then in December, we'll have a Christmas series. And then in January, we'll get back at Matthew. But today, grace, Ephesians chapter 2. So please stand with me as we read God's word. We're going to read verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us and even change us as we're exposed to your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us this day and lead us in the way that you would want us to go. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We stand out of reverence for God and of his word, and now we listen to what God has to say in that very word. We're talking today about grace. You know, grace to some people is their very lifeblood. They're always amazed by it. They never get over God's amazing grace. And that's a good thing. They say the same thing as Paul did. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I do not frustrate the grace of God. This grace in which I stand. And they know very well that as they are saved by grace, so they live by grace, so they serve by grace, and so they lead by grace. And it shows. They, they live in grace. Then there's the rest of us. We know we're recipients of God's grace. But we don't understand what it is. We often end up defining it more by our opinions than what Scripture says. It's a difficult subject to get our arms around. We can say it. We can talk about it. But when it comes to actually understanding what it is, it remains a fuzzy concept. It's common to say that Christianity is all about grace. But have no clue as to what it really is. 
some feel as if they did, if they did know that they really couldn't live that way. Nevertheless, it is possible to understand grace. It is possible to live by the grace of God. And so today I want to address several things about grace. What grace presupposes, what grace is, what grace does, and what's our response to grace in hope that God will grant us all a greater understanding of and experience of his amazing grace. So what does God's grace presuppose? First and foremost, it assumes mankind's sinfulness, mankind's depravity. You see it in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. We were dead spiritually. Living corpses, excuse me, without God's spirit, unable to move, unable to think, say, or do anything that pleases God. Verse 1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. A trespass is going against a known standard. Going where you know you shouldn't go. Sin is innate corruption. It is alienation from God. And we're corrupt in every part of our being. We are very uh, aware of the fact that there is none righteous, not even one, and we're in that group. There is no part of us that is not affected by sin. Our minds, our wills, our bodies are all infected. We speak sinful words, we do sinful things, we have sinful thoughts, we're radically corrupted by sin. Every one of us, completely unable to help ourselves or make a move towards God. Dead people, they can't do anything. A corpse can't move. The wages of sin is spiritual and physical and eternal death. Our bodies, our minds, our souls. And our deadness was due to the sin. And it fell right in line with what is said in verse 2. In which you formerly walked. You lived that way according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, in case you're wondering. We, We fell in line due to our sin according to the course of this world that is diametrically opposed to God. The present system of this world that stands in opposition to God and His truth and His righteousness and His goodness. The present world is alienated from God, is under the power of the evil one. We see that in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And verse 18. The prince of the power of the air, Satan, First John 5.18 says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of him keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The prince of the power of the air, the, who presently operates within the present world system. You see, we live in a, in a system that is polluted and affected by sin, infected by Satan and his demons. In fact, one writer said it this way, we live in an atmosphere poisonous and impregnated with deadly elements. But a mighty purification will be affected by Christ's coming. For Satan will be bound. That's our hope. It says that 
in verse 2, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience are anyone on Satan's side, anyone who doesn't have the spirit of God, anyone who is not born again by the spirit of God. In Romans chapter 3, we read of that condition. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. Knowing that apart from Christ, no one is getting in. Verse 10, Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the first thing that grace presupposes. Mankind's utter sinfulness. But grace also presupposes something else. It presupposes God's justice. God's justice. Look at verse 3. It says, among them we too. It wasn't just them, it was us too. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature innately children of wrath. Even as the rest were all lumped into the sum of sinful humanity. And God's justice demands that sin be dealt with. And so God's wrath, it's not just that we were born sinners and unable to do good. We lived like that. We lived like that and we walked in active rebellion against God. By nature, children of wrath, destined for destruction, on the way to hell, in a state of damnation. That was our, that was our state before we came to Christ, if you have come to Christ. See, God's justice is not only appropriate, it is required so that sin be dealt with fairly. And so God's justice is presupposed in the whole idea of grace. His anger against sin, as we know, was appeased in the sacrifice of Christ. So God's justice, man's sinfulness, and also another presupposition of grace is God's sovereign freedom. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 starts, but God... You see, all that stuff was true about us and about the whole world, but God. <laughs> That's good news for us because God acts independently. Outside of the realm of the sinfulness that in, infused in humanity, but God. See, God acts independently. He can and will do whatever he pleases, whatever pleases him. And you can be sure that he always does what is good, he always does what is kind. He always does what is holy. He always does what is just and what is loving. God never will act in a way that is inconsistent with his character. He always acts in a consistent way according to who he is. Always holy, never a moment where he is not. Always loving, never a moment when he is not. Even in the exercise of his justice. Always kind, always fair, 
always good, and he's not obligated to us. He's not indebted to us in any way. There is no merit on our part that puts God in our debt. He acts freely of his own will. So grace presupposes these three things. Mankind's sinfulness, our utter depravity, God's justice, and his wrath against sin that must, must be put into operation, which was done against Jesus on the cross, and then God's sovereign freedom to do as he wills. But God. And he does whatever he wills. So if you get these three things uh, in order in your mind, then you can move on to what grace is. We've got to define it in the realm in which it operates. We've got to define it within the context in which, we, in which it, it, it exists. So what grace is. The Bible doesn't give us one distinct uh, and separate definition of grace. You can't just go to one verse and say, ah, here is the definition of grace. It runs as a golden thread all through Scripture. The grace of God. You can go from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-21 and you will see grace all the way through from start to finish. Interestingly, Jesus is not recorded once in Scripture as saying the word grace. The word for grace in Greek is charis. It's used in the New Testament 114 times. A friend of mine counted them for me on his computer, I think. And each time it is clear that grace is from God. Grace is a gift from God. It's exclusively God's work, this grace of which we speak. Uh, a key to understanding grace is, is understanding God's mercy and God's love. In fact, stay with me in verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4. But God, now against the backdrop of mankind's utter sinfulness, mankind's utter depravity, but God... Being rich in mercy. So you see God's mercy. Because of his great love. Then you see his love. God's great mercy and love with which he loved us. Now a key to understanding this grace is understanding those two ideas. Grace is often differentiated from, uh, from mercy. In that mercy is not receiving punishment that one deserves to receive. While grace is receiving a benefit, a positive one that one does not deserve to receive. So mercy holds back what we should get. Grace gives what we shouldn't. Mercy, the Greek word is elios, is God's special and immediate regard for the misery that sin brings. It's the misery, the, the, the penalty of sin that mercy alleviates. It takes away the penalty of sin. But agape love, God's love, is the love that God shows in not giving us what we want, but what we need. Because he knows what's best for us. He knows what we need more than we do. So let me give you a few shots at grace. Three ideas. Grace, first of all, is God's undeserved favor shown to sinners. Again, grace presupposes sin and sinfulness. Basically, grace is God's love and mercy in action. Grace is God's love and mercy working together. Grace is for the guilty. B.B. Warfield called grace sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. 
Sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Irrespective of actions, irrespective of earned worth or of of proven goodness, which we cannot do, it's completely unmerited. it's, it's, It's a favor done with full knowledge that the recipient cannot return the favor, cannot ever give back what was given to them. They might try, but it can't be done. We will always be indebted to God for his grace. See, there's no thank you note that could be written. There is nothing we can do to even the score with God. It's too big. Grace is too much for us to even comprehend. You'll always be indebted to God for his grace. We who had no resources. See, God's unearned kindness towards mankind, that's what grace is. It's his undeserved favor shown to sinners. It's his unearned kindness towards mankind. And it's his love freely given to the bankrupt. God's love freely given to those who had no resources whatsoever. We just heard yesterday of another bank failing. Downey Savings and Loan. From my hometown, my first bank account was, was from the original Downey Savings on Florence Avenue. So it made me sad to open up the paper yesterday morning and see Downey Savings fails. Gone. A lot of people are bankrupt today. No resources. Come to the end of their rope and now they're in a negative and they have less than zero. See, God's love is freely given to the bankrupt. We who had no resources, we who had nothing to offer, nothing we could do, God in his extravagant love decides to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. See, grace is the absolute freeness of God's love toward mankind, whose motive is rooted firmly in the goodness of God, in God's excellence. God is the source and provider of grace. It comes from Him. Recently, we've been going to a lot of cross-country meets. Our daughter Alexandra has been running these races and And I love going to these races. I get pretty nervous, maybe even more nervous than I used to be when I would run these kind of races in my earlier days. Um, But the funny thing is to watch the people in the middle of the race. Now, you've got to watch people in the race that you're not watching because you do the same thing. But here's what they do. They run to all these spots on the course. The gun goes off and they run to this little spot so they can see their runner come by. And as their runner comes by, they yell their runner's name, cheering them on thinking that somehow that cheering is going to give them more energy, make them run faster, help them to win. But here's the thing. There is nothing we can do to make our daughter run faster in her race. Uh, It might give her some encouragement. It might even give undue pressure. But we yell that name thinking we're we're doing something for the person. And there's really nothing you can do. You got to just let it let it ride. It's like I was coaching soccer this year, and uh, once they get on the field, they're on their own. Okay, you, we yell at them; they probably don't hear us, and they kick the ball. I, the couple times the ball came near to me on the sidelines, and I wanted to kick it, but I knew I couldn't. A couple times I had to hold myself back. But here's the deal: you cheer for someone, you cannot give them the strength to do what you're cheering them on to do. They've got to find it somewhere else. Now think about grace with me for a moment. 
Grace, on the other hand, in a Christian's life, does it all. It does it all. It cheers you on and gives you the ability to do what it's cheering you on to do. Grace carries you. Grace takes you from start to finish. As you're saved by grace, you live by grace, you serve by grace, you lead by grace, and do everything you do by grace. That's what God intends for us. That's the understanding God wants us to have about grace. But often, we want to accept, we, we freely accept grace-based salvation and then think we've got to live a works-based life. See, grace can take you from, from last place to first place in a, in a moment. Grace puts all who come to Christ by faith from in last place all the way to first. It's amazing. It's mind-boggling. We don't understand it. But grace properly understood is extended to us by God and received by us as, as a gift from God, and it's a continual thing. It's not just grace to be saved, it's grace to do everything in the Christian life. Now, if we're going to talk about what grace is, we've got to also talk about what grace isn't, what it's not. What grace isn't? There are times we misapply grace. There are times we, um, we define grace incorrectly. We call something grace when it isn't. God's grace is free, it's unmerited, it's his kindness from God for the guilty, but it's not avoiding dealing with issues. We say things like this, well, you know, I'm really bugged at that person, but I'm just going to show grace. And what you're really saying is, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to face the pain of having to deal with that issue with that person, internal or external. See, that's... That's based on fear of what people may think or how they may respond. See, grace always deals with stuff. True grace, true biblical grace always deals with stuff. Grace deals squarely with issues and faces them head on. Grace is not excusing sin in our lives. You know, oh well, we're all under grace, not law. Oh yeah, I did that, but hey, we're under grace. Oh, they did that? Oh, well, grace grace covers us. It's okay. Don't worry about it. See, grace covers over sin, but it doesn't hide it. It covers because a payment was made. A payment was sin for made, therefore grace isn't able to take effect. Grace then can be extended because a payment was received. Grace is not enabling behaviors that don't align with truth thereby assisting others to continue in untruth or in a lie or not face the truth. See, grace is honest. Grace is kind. Grace forgives, but there's always a cost to the giver. Which leads us to what grace does. What does it do? Let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, again, reminded of our complete inability to do anything for ourselves in the spiritual realm. Here's what God did. 
He made us alive. He brought us to life. He resurrected the corpse. It's the resurrection power of God. See, grace gives life. Outside of Christ, we were outside of God, without God, without hope. Left to our own devices, unable to bring ourselves to him because we were dead. See, we're not talking about good people that need to be made better. We're talking about dead people who need to be brought to life. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Just a couple letters over. Speaking of the new self, the new person, the new, the new creation that God brings about. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 says this. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, and you think back to Ephesians 2, 5, he made us alive together with Christ, and then verse 6 says he raised us with him. So Colossians 3, if you have been raised up with Christ, positionally seated with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now you think back to then Ephesians uh, chapter 2, Verse 6 says, he seated us with him in the heavenly places, positionally. So it says in, in, in Colossians then, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. Interesting. You were dead, but you also have died. You were dead and unable to do anything, but you've also died to that old way of deadness. You were dead So you've died and your life now is hidden with Christ in God. Grace gives life. Verse 4 in in Colossians 3 says, When Christ who is our life. So you were dead and now you've got the life of Christ infused in you spiritually. Now you kept breathing. Your heart kept beating. Physically you were still alive. But spiritually you were dead and now Christ lives in you, as Galatians 2.20 says, and now you have been made alive. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will, reveal, will be revealed with him in glory. Now, going back to Ephesians 2, in verse 5, it's rooted in the resurrection power of God. Because when you go into verse 6, it says, we were raised with him. We were raised with him. Positionally, we weren't there when it happened. Physically, we weren't even born yet, obviously. But we were raised with him, and now we are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. You want to know where your true position in Christ is? It's being alive in Christ. It's being raised with Christ. It's being seated with Christ in the heavenlies. All the while, physically, you're here in orange. Or wherever you may find yourself on a daily basis. But spiritually speaking, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It goes beyond our ability to understand. But it's a truth that we must must grasp in some way as God gives us understanding. Grace gives life where there was no life. The next thing grace does is it stoops down to help. Grace condescends. Verses 6 and 7. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. 
so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Us who were dead as a doornail, spiritually speaking. Us who had no hope in the world. Chosen by God, beloved by God. The Old Testament word for grace came from a word meaning to bend or to stoop down. It had the meaning of condescending favor, that a superior would stoop to help an inferior. Donald Gray Barnhouse said it this way, Love that goes upwards is worship. Love that goes outwards is affection. Love that stoops is grace. We see that idea in Philippians 2. How the Son left heaven and took the form of man. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. We're, we're instructed to have an attitude that Jesus had. What kind of attitude did he have? It says in verse 6 of, of Philippians chapter 2. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. He condescended to become man. He stooped down to become man. And verse 8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Taking a penalty that we could never take. Doing something we would never be willing to do. He was exalted. He left his lofty position. And stooped. So grace gives life. Grace stoops to help. And then you come to the pinnacle. Grace rescues from danger. Grace saves. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. uh, Two of the most famous verses in all the Bible. Some of the most often quoted. That's why I love that we can see it today in context. It means just what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You know, uh, Paul, as the Holy Spirit was, was inspiring him to write, he couldn't help but throw in in verse 5 that, that little tidbit in parenthetical form, by grace you're saved. Alluding to what's coming next. Building up to this, this crescendo that says, by grace you've been saved through faith. And don't ever think it's from yourself. Remember, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were a child of wrath. You were destined for destruction. Grace rescues from danger. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world because we needed a Savior. We needed to be rescued. You take any picture of rescue you want. Rescuing a drowning person. Rescuing someone from a burning building. Rescuing someone from a cliff that they've fallen over. Whatever the case, there's danger There's inability to do for yourself what you would like to have done. God rescues us. He saves us by his grace through faith. Grace is the cause. Faith is in operation and salvation is the effect. But grace is the cause. Salvation the effect. Let's go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. 
grace works in us. Grace, grace is always in operation. God's grace. Always permeating the situation. We read that grace, based upon God's kindness and His love for mankind, in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, when that appeared, verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness. Don't ever say there was anything about me that caused God to save me. And you can't also go to that error that says there's something about what I'm doing that keeps me there. As we're saved by grace, so we live by grace. Uh, He does not save us on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You got mercy and love there again. But God, in his grace, works to conform us to the image of Christ. God, in his grace, restores to us the original intended purpose of reflecting his glory, reflecting his nature. God's grace continues to be poured out on us to the point of our ultimate glorification. You've got salvation, coming to faith in Christ by grace. You've got sanctification all the way from when you come to Christ to when you go to be with Jesus, growing in Christ by grace. And then you've got the ultimate when you go to be with Jesus or when he comes back, whichever comes first, that Jesus, we are glorified in him it's going to be realized, again, at our homegoing or the return of Christ. But that's when grace is poured out on us to the uttermost. The grace rescues us from danger. It doesn't just set us securely on solid ground, but keeps taking us all the way through to the intended uh, outcome, to the end of the road, all the way through eternity. What else does grace do? Grace, grace stoops. Grace rescues grace gives life grace also empowers for living empowers for living verse 10 so you can't boast about it all right but what about from from there on out you can't boast about your salvation verse 10 says we are his workmanship god's work of art god's handiwork created in christ jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We would live in the realm of them. We would live like that. God's grace can also be described as God's empowering presence in one's life, enabling us to do and be what God calls us to do and be. Being coming before doing. So we're able to then say that line that I keep saying, as I'm saved by grace... So I live by grace, so I serve by grace, so I lead by grace, and and you you fill in the blank. So I do, and whatever you're called to do, by grace. We live and have our being in grace. Jesus showers his grace upon us. God told Paul, when he had that pesky thorn in the flesh, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. It is enough. That's how we can sing that song, uh, your grace is enough. You know, we sing, your grace is enough, and we keep looking around for something else. Well, if we really believe it, we're going to say that. God's grace is sufficient, and your future is assured by grace. So we can, as 2, Timothy, uh, 2 Peter 3.18 says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will grow in grace and knowledge 
of God. And that your future is secured. You don't have to look around for something else because grace isn't sufficient. His grace is enough. As grace led you to faith in the first place, it will keep you there, believing till the end. Don't ever be afraid that you might stop believing. Grace will keep you believing to the end. Uh, As we sing in Amazing Grace, as grace has brought you safe thus far, grace will lead you home. Grace, that's what we sing. Grace will lead us home. We sing it, we just can't live it. But it's not all about us and what God does for us. It's about giving God what is rightfully His, which leads us to our response to grace. What is our response to be? Let me point out three things. First, you need to acknowledge it. Simply acknowledge God's grace. You see, the, I don't know if you ever looked at this, but Paul starts and ends every one of his letters with grace. You can go there and look in Romans, First and Second Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, all these places. God moved in the writers to start and end with grace. Grace is the last word in the Bible. So there needs to be this humble acknowledgement of grace. But we know we don't always do that. We don't acknowledge God's grace. When we don't acknowledge God's grace, it's because we're at the center of our lives, not God. We take good things and make them God things. We elevate creation over the creator. It's easy to elevate almost anything over God. Spouse, kids, work, you name it. Behind every sin is a false god. How does idolatry uh, capture us and eradicate grace? It pushes grace out of the way. What happens is this. We define for ourselves some hell that we don't want to go to. And then some concept of heaven that we would like. And to get us from our hell to our heaven, we select and worship a functional savior. In, In a sense, this is what a lot of advertising is. You look at the magazine covers in the supermarket. Maybe you, sh- maybe you shouldn't look at the magazine covers in the supermarket. But, but look at them, uh, not at the things you shouldn't look at, but just you notice that those, those pictures are pictures of someone's heaven. And they give you five ways to get there. Just open the cover and, and read those five ways. And they transport you into your heaven. And the steps, the magazine, uh, the person become your functional savior. False idol promises to give us things that make life worth living. A good thing becomes a God thing. Oftentimes it's what we love most that enslaves us. We end up not acknowledging God's grace that takes us from start to finish, but some functional savior in the middle that we have uh, got our eyes diverted to. what we find out is that the lie goes unmet. That what we gave ourselves to doesn't satisfy. It doesn't, what guaranteed pleasure brings pain. Even a good thing needs God to be enjoyed. Like a can of peaches without a can opener. You can't enjoy it, right? I once opened a can of baked beans with a pocket knife in Indonesia. So you can't get in there sometimes. 
But our idols are exposed in the answers to questions like these. What are you most afraid of? What do you long for most passionately? Where do you run for comfort? What do you complain about the most? What angers you the most? Who angers you the most? What makes you happiest? How do you ascribe yourself to other people? What has caused you to be angry with God? What do you brag about? What do you want more than anything? What do you sacrifice for? Whose approval are you seeking? You acknowledge God's grace. You make grace your foremost thought. Allow God to let grace become your foremost thought. You'll see the idols fade away. We need to acknowledge God's grace. We also need to praise God for his grace. Just in the beginning of this this book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 6. As God is saying that he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, it says this in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And down in verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And in verse 14, He's given us the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Grace inspires praise. His goodness inspires every good thing. It inspires thanksgiving. God's grace inspires thanksgiving. In a word, it inspires worship. The purpose of worship is for God's glory. Now, God doesn't need anything from us. So in a way, we come to God to receive We come to God in worship and we receive blessing, we receive rebuke, we receive care, we receive love. And as we receive, this glorifies God too, enabling us to have joy and building up the community of faith. We need to praise God for his worship. It's interesting, sometimes you've got to ask this question, what makes good worship? What, What makes good praise? When asked this question, it usually centers around a worship service that has been planned out, and it's concerning style or emotion. Those are the answers usually given. Someone will say, worship was so good this morning, as if it only happened in this room, and what they often mean is they liked the music or they were emotionally engaged. Those aren't bad things, but it doesn't mean that true worship has been experienced. Good worship is grace-filled worship. When we come to God with grateful hearts, with humble hearts, knowing where we came from, and knowing where he's taking us by his grace, knowing we don't deserve the bounty we've been given, thankful, not prideful, not wanting or needing self to be satisfied, just wanting God to be glorified, then grace-filled worship can happen. We can acknowledge that we all have preferences, and it's all right to have preferences, and it's all right if our preferences aren't met because we exist to worship God, not our preferences. When we do that, we're acknowledging truth, and we're able to act in grace towards those with whom we disagree. 
and we're able to praise God freely. A.W. Tozier said, if you can't worship God seven days a week, you can't worship him one day a week. Living by grace is worshiping God every day. And anything done to the glory of God is an act of worship. Worship is both that lifestyle and an event. There are Christians who live their life six days a week, as they always have. And then on Sundays, come to worship the king of the universe. And then go home as if nothing changed. That's not true worship. Luther said, as sinners, we are stuck in a perpetual loop of self that says, God exists to serve me so I can achieve my glory. The true grace-filled living, true worship is where I exist for the glory of God. And the only way out of the addiction to self-glory and idolatry is the mediator, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one worthy of of being functional savior, functional mediator in our life. And grace is not just for us. The last thing I want to share is that we must also share it with others. Verse 10 tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And I mentioned that many of us are willing to accept the grace-based salvation, but think that we need to live a a works-based life. But we've got to guard our hearts against nullifying the grace of God and slipping into the error of trying to earn our way to God once the price has already been paid. By the grace of God, we are what we are. And at the same time, God enables our response to Him. The idea is this. Don't trust in your works. Grace operating in our lives bears the fruit of grace, which is good works. You operate out of gratitude for God's grace and you won't start to begin to trust in those works. Works are the outflow of the grace of God in us. You see it over and over again in Scripture. You see it in the book of Acts as he empowered his chosen. You see it in in many instances in Scripture. But to the extent to which we show true biblical grace to anyone else, it's really only a reflection of God's grace working through us. We say sometimes, well, I'm going to be gracious here. I'm going to show grace. And really, we're saying, I'm going to try to be nice, or I'm going to try to be kind, or I'm going to try to be good towards someone. That really cheapens God's grace. It's not us trying to show grace. It's us allowing God to, to work in us and through us to such an extent that grace flows onto others as it flows through us. And you don't need to strain for that. See, grace teaches us how to live. And we are to, to allow grace to affect our lives in such a way that our, our relationships are transformed. Grace and, and freedom and forgiveness, if you think about it, are all related. Grace, forgiveness, and freedom. Grace brings forgiveness. Grace brings freedom. They're all related. And we struggle with the twin sins of comparison and control. We compare ourselves to other people. That's not grace-based. We try to control other people. That's definitely not grace-based. But grace says this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You who are trapped behind the walls of your own or someone else's making. And be free. Grace says, I came to set you free from, from legalism. 
and unfair expectations and traditionalism and manipulation and negativism and control and comparison and resentment and fear and bitterness and unforgiveness and insecurity and guilt and shame and gossip and hypocrisy. Grace came to set us free from all those things. Don't wallow in them. All the things that keep you from experiencing the joy that Jesus intends for you to enjoy. All the things that keep us from experiencing the true reality of the table that we are now going to partake of. In John chapter 1, we read that grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. It says that of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. It literally means grace in the place of grace. A perpetual supply of grace over and over again. And one of my favorite writers, Amy Carmichael, quoting another author from the past, spoke of a riverbed. And our lives being the empty riverbed and the water flowing through the riverbed is the grace of God. And it's new and living water every moment. Always water, always grace, but new and living as each moment requires in answer to every need. 